arrived at the last evening of our retreat. Um, congratulations <laughs> for those that uh, you know found it hard to to stay and to get to the end. It's great you were able to stay and. Uh, Yes, for those that feel like it's gone very quickly, uh, it has, too. Um, so tonight, <clears throat> rather than, we feel like we've you know, covered quite a lot of ground in the Dhamma reflections over the last few days, since the retreat began last Friday. Um, so, as Kirisara mentioned this morning, we wanted to open it up more for any questions or um, inquiry into some of the teachings and invited also for written questions in case people found that easier, an easier medium to, to ask. So, I'm not sure whether we should perhaps restress some of the written ones first. Yeah, so um, different. Questions. Some of them are actually are around similar points. There's um, yeah, I think that one could go towards the ends. About the Hermitage and etc. in South Africa. That one. And this one is quite. I think the um, as in some ways part of our work and, and what our practice really and what we bring to the retreat, which is often um, a little bit different in the vipassana scene, is the element of devotion, of mantra practice, of recitation practice, and of course um, the Kuan Yin dharmas, the Dhammador of Chan uh, and Kuan Yin. So. There's always a lot of different inquiries, different kinds of responses to that. So maybe we should start with that. There's one about the Great Compassion Mantra. There's one about the use of prayer. There's one about, um, you had one there, which is around that territory, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So would you mind, okay, sorry, to, to this one is about, if you saw that one, this one's about prayer. Could you please say something about who, what we offer our devotion to? Is that still working? Just went off. The the. Well, the mic's just gone off. No, isn't it? It's not on. So something's not plugged in. So. I think the electricity electricity went off. Yeah, that's what it is. Anyway, I'll I'll try. Uh, it's also possible to come forward if you want to. Mm-hmm. I don't know if people get really in their, pos- <laughs> their spots, but there's there's quite a lot of space at the front. There's, Empty seats. Uh, could you please say something about uh, who or what we offer our devotion to? 
Um, you said something about Kuan Yin flowing into different forms as she responds to our cries. Is the Buddha nature, love, God, awareness all the same? Is the ultimate point to open to Kuan Yin, Buddha, Christ, in our own heart, mind? That's a simple question. (laughs) (laughs) The devotional practices are hard to talk about. It it is said in the... um, I think it's the Tao Te Ching, uh, a Taoist text, that the name that can be named is not the eternal name. So I can't say exactly what we're devoting ourselves to because whatever you say doesn't capture it. But, for example, in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, the sources of inspiration that... uh, the Buddha suggested as a vehicle to, to carry our inspiration and to, and to direct our, our heart and energies of body, speech, and mind and to bring us home to where we've always been, to, to wake up out of the illusions, out of the dreams. So in a sense, we're devoting ourselves to these ultimate principles which are timeless. They're eternal principles, timeless principles. You, in a world that is so fraught with birth and death, in a sense, the, the objects of one's devotion are... Again, language can capture it, but what could be said to be permanent? What could be said to be our true nature? What could be said to be uh, true happiness, what could be said to be true purity. Uh, at first, because of the nature of, our, of how we're, we're conditioned, it's very dualistic. We, we can't see it in ourselves. Or if we do, at first, if we do see it in ourselves, we tend to be inflated. You know, I'm the ruler of the universe. But... Uh, Sometimes we, we recognize in a, in a compassionate, a saintly, a, a being outside ourself. Uh, oh, there it is. Sometimes we recognize that quality, say, like when I recognized something different in Ajahn Chah. Buddha didn't mean anything to me, but I, I recognize something loving, bright, at ease, fluid, powerful. Uh, 
If the devotional practice, though, is, is being guided well, our, our teachers will remind us, keep returning the power to us, remind us that ultimately we're not doing something dualistic, like in our, the way over the years we've practiced the Kuan Yin Dharmas, we remind ourselves when, when we bow in ceremonies that the worshipped and the worshiper, that means that which is out there, that which is in here seeming to be worshipping, the worshipped and the worshiper are empty and still. They're ultimately not two. But because of our tendency to contract around our worries, our doubts, our tendencies, our body, our feelings, at first the, these devotional principles remind us of that which is like Buddha, awakened. We recite the qualities every day, filled with blessings, far from defilement, perfectly awake, possessed of wisdom and compassion. Um, Then in, in surrendering, opening, praising that, we raise into our heart qualities which we've forgotten that are in our nature. So we raise them into the heart and begin to allow them to, to come forth again. But you can't say that the Buddha or the, or, or the Christ is located somewhere. Yeah, there he is. There's the Buddha. And yet, you cannot point to any part of the universe that is apart from the Buddha. It sounds like a paradox, because these are limitless, measureless principles. When there was a disciple of the Buddha that was just... I mean, the Buddha, supposedly, with all those eons of good karma, was beautiful to gaze upon. Skin, lovely skin, lovely hair. Lovely features, lovely voice. So this disciple just really got into just gazing at the Buddha, listening to the Buddha, admiring the Buddha, inspired by the Buddha. That's all lovely stuff. It's not bad. But at a certain point, the Buddha, I suppose, I'm not reading the Buddha's mind, but I'm just guessing. At a certain point, the Buddha thought, well, enough is enough. And so he, uh, he sent him out to a branch monastery, so to speak. He sent him to practice in a remote place. I can't remember the disciple's name, but he was, oh, sent away from the Buddha, sent away from the Buddha, separated from the Buddha. And the Buddha read his mind, appeared to him and said, you think this is the Buddha? And he pointed to his own body. I mean, yes, it's aspect of the Buddha. But he said, this is not the real Buddha. This, when he pointed to his body, this will get old and sick and die. Then he said to the disciple, when you see the Dhamma, when you see deeply into the way things are, then you'll see the Buddha. Then we see the real Buddha, the eternal Buddha the timeless Buddha, the original brightness. All of these devotional principles 
to me are pointing to that place when there's no greed, no hatred, no delusion, and then we notice what always already is, the limitless, bright nature that has within it all things. So are all the the traditions the same? I mean, I mean, to me, I don't. I like. I find the Buddhist uh, ways of talking in guidelines really helpful, especially because they are so aware of their own limitations. The Buddha made it very clear: the ultimate truth is not these words. Not this body. Not even these teachings. He even said his teachings, you use them. But he said if you use a raft, he said they're like a raft to get across the sea. Once you're across, you you don't have to carry it on your head everywhere. You can put it down so that others can use it. You realize it's a tool. So the, the, the goal is ungraspable. It's our own nature. So to me, when teachings... Remember that they take us home. When teachings don't remember that or forget that, then sometimes we just get stuck on a teacher or stuck on a tradition or stuck on a dogma and then and then there can be lots of problems. A teaching that's meant to take us to freedom sometimes doesn't take us there. So Kuan Yin is so wonderful to me because it's a practice that allows me to call, to acknowledge when I'm suffering from this limited self to call into the mystery and then listen into that living silence and to be open to the possibility of learning in this next moment, this next moment. And to keep bowing, the name itself reminds me, just like the word Buddha points to the same place, reminds me to keep melting back into that measureless principle of wakefulness or inner listening. So those are some thoughts. Thanks, Kesas. Um, I was going to say, um, the, just to embroider a little bit more on that in relationship to the question about prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think you basically answered it, but just a, a couple of things that I found quite interesting in in um, in my practice. And before I before I say um, tell you that, I was <clears throat> um, very struck by something that Mother Teresa uh, said once when she was asked about how does she pray, um, and she said. Oh, I, I, you know, when I pray, actually, I listen. 
And then the question you said, well, how does God respond? Well, what is, you know, and, and Mother Sherry said, oh, well, God listens too. <laughs> and then she said, well, if you don't understand that, I can't really help you. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think uh, like a lot of these practices connect, connected with devotion because we carry culturally often a lot of um, have been recipients of unskillful ways of um, devotional practice being taught um, through fear or intimidation or compulsion that um, there's some, sometimes quite a, a wounding to, to, the, to the devotional nature actually which is I think really natural to all of us that sense of awe and wishing to call upon or open to or listen deeply into or to for the self to acknowledge its limitation and 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 be willing to to yeah and I think that feeling of calling and opening into the mystery is a really beautiful way of putting it but I think because there's often um, quite a complicated relationship to something that perhaps is quite innate to us um, that even some of the words like prayer become quite hard to to use um, but it's it's nice i mean what's interesting in how the buddha taught he would often he, he used words that were innate to the culture he was in and then often would give new meaning or fill them out with new life new context and i think that's a useful thing to do to look at a word like prayer um, and to realize that it is something very very natural i remember once when um even if we don't feel we're very prayerful, <laughs> sometimes in in really crisis moments, it, the natural tendency is to move move in that way. Once when Kitty Sara and I were in South Africa, and uh, we'd been working really hard, and it'd been actually quite difficult, and we decided to take an evening out and go to the movies, which is quite a difficult thing to do because it means driving over two hours through rural um, KwaZulu-Natal, which isn't the safest place to drive through at night, and drive all the way back again. But we obviously were quite desperate <laughs> to get out of the hermitage. And so we decided on an impulse to do this. And the other added dimension to life in KwaZulu-Natal is that it has very erratic and sometimes quite dangerous weather patterns. So we drove off in a late afternoon that looked very promising. It was quite sunny, quite bright. And as we got further along the road, we, we hit quite a serious rainstorm. And the rainstorms there aren't quite like the... Well, actually, the rain, you know, with the global warming, things have changed here. Perhaps England's becoming a bit more like Africa, I don't know. But the, the rain can really just, like, you know, just just chucks down and it's quite quite frightening to drive in um, and then it just turned into this heavy mist so we were sort of like committed to this long drive in the middle of nowhere where you don't want to break down it's, it's not that cool to break down with this thick mist trying to get to a movie and um, and to, to create even more problem we got stuck behind a logging truck which was going really slow so at a certain point, we were, Kitty Sire was driving, and 
and um, and the mist cleared a little bit, and he just pulled out and looked, and it looked like, yeah, it's pretty safe, maybe could make it. And so we looked at each other and said, yeah, let's let's go for it. And so he put his foot down and started going past the truck, but the the truck was actually longer than than it appeared from the back. And um, as we were driving past, suddenly these car headlights seemingly came out of nowhere and they were just for me it was very clear that we were toast and immediately I could just feel my body just going to like putty you know it's just like and Kalisa just turned around to me and said pray (laughs) (laughs) and it was a really good thing to say and it really helped focus my mind you know because I could just feel immediately the body just went like jelly the, the mind just went into freeze um, fortunately he had his wits about him and was able to I, I probably would have hit the brake and that would have been the worst thing to do he hit the accelerator and was able to get in but but it was just like yeah in those moments it's just like the the, the word prayer just sort of was this sense of just open and re, and just go to the deepest resonant place of awareness in this moment and just trust it um and yeah, it just felt very comforting, very right. Um, and then another another time when I was uh, practicing in the monastery, and a few years into into life in the monastery, maybe four or five years or so, I hit a very very bad um, place of depression that just didn't shift. I tried everything, and it was got it got more and more profound to the level of it was very hard to actually even get up and put my robes on and get out to the day. And I was trying positive thinking and chanting and, you know, everything that I could possibly try to to lift out of this sense of, of deep depression. And what was interesting to me is in it was that one day when I was at my lowest point and everything seemed very bleak, this prayer from my Christian background um, came up in my heart and it just started repeating itself um, from you know, you know part of me is going oh god I should be doing a Buddhist something or other <laughs> it was just like this. but it was very comforting it was just a prayer that was just like you know um, Lord have mercy Christ have mercy it was just like this merciful sense of softening in the midst of this darkness and it, and I realized my psyche had just produced this as a as a vehicle, as a way of just negotiating that territory. And I think, you know, as Kitty Sarah says, it's not so much the form. I mean, it could change. Maybe the prayer takes a Christian form, maybe a form of Kuan Yin, maybe a Hindu. Who knows what the names are? But it's all pointing back to this deeper inner listening. As Mother Teresa was pointing to this softening and listening into the heart itself, the deeper heart. Uh, so I, f- I feel it's a shame not, not to be able to have that tool or that access um, because of uh, some erroneous way of it being imparted, perhaps in our culture sometimes. It's a shame that sometimes that, that natural capacity for prayerfulness softening, opening, can get marginalised.
No, it's it's lovely. And and I think for some hardcore Buddhist it might say that's not Buddhist, there's not prayer in Buddha. The Buddha said it's through your own efforts. And uh, I would like to remind the uh, whoever made that comment (laughs) (laughs) that yes, the Buddha had Buddha being aware of Dhamma the way things are, but did he throw Sangha in there just because he had to make up the numbers? You know, what is Sangha? Buddha, Dhamma, aware of how things are, taking you all the way. That sounds pretty good to me. What's, why aren't there just two refuges? Because it's, it's almost impossible to do on our own. We get blind spots. We get discouraged. And then it's in relationship. We get, we get encouraged by another example. How many countless beings went to the Buddha, his embodied form, asked a question, called for help, and then got a response. And yet the Buddha pointed out in the story I told earlier that this physical body is not the real Buddha. But this, this universe is dynamic. It's awake and it responds. So the, the prayerful dynamic is, is very much in harmony with that just as one would ask a question. Sometimes we don't have a question, someone to ask to, but we, we ask it into the silence and listen. That way our, our longing, our, our struggle becomes conscious. It's spoken or it's thought. And part of our inner listening hears that. But then also we listen around that and we also listen in, in a wider way and begin to get the sense that there is response, not always in the way we would like it to be, but learning to refresh our capacity to, to receive again this next moment. If you want to say while we're in that similar territory still, if you want to say anything about this. Uh, maybe we should do. Do you not want to do that? No, yeah. Oh, use, okay, stop. Yeah. Actually, maybe I should do this one before we do that. I just, um, just this is just a very brief question here about the Great Compassion Mantra. Um, it's in the one, the one we've been chanting is transliterated from Sanskrit, and it's in Chinese. So there's a question: which language it is? What is it saying? Um, next retreat. <laughs> it's it's a whole it's it's Kitty Sarah talked about it the other morning. It's a it's a whole um 
uh, its meaning really you know rather than we could like go and go through each of the phrases and and translate them back you know, honoring begins with honoring the triple jewel and then in the core of the mantra articulates the 42 hands and eyes of Kuan Yin each of the hands and eyes of a different response, what's called her response bodies, how they're responding to, compassionately responding with strength or with kindness or with mercy or with wisdom to the needs of living being. And each of the lines activates, as one chants it, as a mantra activates the energetic response. So it's a, it's a part of what's called the, the esoteric mantra school of Chinese Buddhism. Um, so, and it's when one chants it, it's meant to sound like water flowing, and one the essence of it. I mean, Master Xinhua, who's got the transmission from about this mantra, would say that you know the meaning. It's not. It's in some ways, it's quite mysterious. But the essence of it is really to to um, as one chants it, it flows like water. Is to connect with the intention of compassion. And to allow the sound to carry that intention into the world around. So it's that's the kind of the heart of the practice. Okay, so one can study, as Denise was saying, the the, the the meaning and the other morning I, I went over some of the lines like Namo Dana Dolaye, Namo The first few lines is honoring the these limitless principles we're talking about, those first lines talk about the limitless, timeless, eternally dwelling triple jewel of wisdom, truth, and virtue in the whole cosmos. And, and then your, your, uh, these principles that Tanishwa is talking about. Uh, but, but as one uh, learns the mantra and chants the mantra, it engages the conceptual faculty, you know, that which thinks has to recite the mantra. But what's so lovely about mantra practice is you're using that faculty so that the, the sounds flow through the heart, the syllables flow through the heart. But you're learning not to get caught by them, learning to let them flow. Normally, sometimes when we use words, we get so trapped by them. caught into these designations we've been looking at that split the world up into here and there and good and bad and yesterday and tomorrow. The repetitive mantra practice, which is pointing to our aspiration back to awakening, engages that same faculty, but we learn to let let the syllables and the words and the sounds keep flowing. And, and it, it helps us uh, settle more fully into the, into the listening, the unified place that is not caught and snagged by the perceptions that flow through the mind. Um, Another question was uh, I am interested in the idea of a practice 
that is robust and not um, dependent on the conditions of a retreat. In the past, however, I've always struggled to maintain the same stance when faced with so many incoming demands, stimulations, and so many options for distracting myself and or acting on aversion. I'd be very interested in your... Uh, oh, I can't see... in your thoughts. So it's a question about daily life. I used to, for years, after every retreat, get to get depressed. I love retreats. I, I, I enjoy permission to be with the simplicity of body, mind, thought. Things get into perspective and I tend to bathe in that delicious <coughs> refinement of consciousness, body and consciousness. And that's skillful, and, and for those of us who, who've had that has happened on this retreat, it's, it's lovely when it happens. I would get depressed, but, uh, I think, because in, in, in going back into my everyday situation, even in monastic life, I, I would lose that feeling and uh, get really discouraged. I wanted that feeling of refinement to, to be permanent. Can I say that was that's called wrong view? It wasn't it wasn't seeing it wasn't seeing uh, clearly. One can enjoy enjoy refinement, but expecting uh, we have all these situations supporting us. So there's bound to be all kinds of uh, challenges. And so it took a long time to start asking the question: Well, what? What can remain constant? You know, it is the nature of energy to be more focused, more dispersed. Nature of feelings to become more refined and then more coarse, just like in the nature is for the seasons to change, the light to change, sounds to change. And, and I, I, I think uh, more and more over time I begin to, you know, let go of that expectation and just uh, keep asking the question, how is it now? And and find where the refuge is, wherever wherever I happen to be. (coughs) And ask that question, where is the Buddha now? Where is peacefulness? Refined energy is not always around. But wakefulness can always be there. The true nature can always be there. We open to it. Opportunity to cultivate that which is skillful can always be there. So, so to me, the daily life is a wonderful challenge to, to be interested in, in where we fall down, where we trip up. And I think it's an opportunity for us, like tomorrow we will uh, have a very simple ceremony,
for uh, each of us in our own way who wants to, to be a part of it, forming our intention, our commitment, however we articulate that. It's like it's useful to have a sense of what, what's important to us. For some, the particular articulation of the refuge is, is useful. You know, that was the one that the Buddha encouraged those who had uh, trust in his way to, to make that intention of, I go for refuge to this place of wakefulness. I go for refuge again and again to the true nature as it's unfolding and arising. I go for refuge to Sangha, Buddha Dhamma Sangha, good friendship and, and this opportunity to practice. And to, to each of us find, you know, finding ways to how to keep that intention alive. I mean, each of us will find different, different ways. For me, I need to have periods of quiet every day. In the morning, it really helps me. At night, even if I'm tired, really helps me to pause and at least check in. What's happening now? Touching into the desperate feelings. Oh, if I don't rest now, uh, tomorrow, then I won't be able to, you know, even wait a minute, two minutes. Touch those feelings. Get perspective on them. Others are different. For me, one thing that really helps uh, these principles that I love, that become so clear on retreat, one way to keep them alive in daily life is recitation. I do... This is uh, my way. Tanisha and I do a lot, but I do. There's certain recitations, mantras I do every day because I made a determination. And and while doing the mantra, it helps. It helps me remember this moment. Remember the listening. Remember my refuge. Even when I'm really tired, if I hadn't done it by the nighttime, I then make the effort to to do it help come back. Uh, And I think we can really explore uh, with our own nature, our own life, explore ways of of remembering what we cherish, however we articulate that. And so resolution is is occasionally having times when we solemnly wholeheartedly remember what we cherish and determine, no, I want to make much of this in my life. I want to find ways to bring this alive in not only retreat, but when I'm speaking to my friends, when I'm acting in my workplace, when I'm going through life. Wonderful challenge. Do you have- just, just to um, add a little bit more onto that, I, I find it um, very helpful. I mean, I, the daily practice I find helpful. I'm not very disciplined, so it's not always easy for me to keep that going. But, but um, I find when it does slip, then it, it's much more. I'm much more prone to getting stressed and reactive and caught up and. Um, and then you know, start drinking too much caffeine and start getting more driven, and that, that those kind of patterns 
It's sort of like a, you know, there's a stress and the dukkha builds up, the sort of more addictive type tendencies come up or distractive type tendencies. So um, I find that the, 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 the sitting, being able to go early in the morning, light some candles and sit, it's been, been really important for me. Um, and the chanting, but also in terms of everyday life, the the attitude that I that I bring to the, my work or what I'm doing or engaging in, um, particularly when it's quite challenging or quite difficult, I find that uh, it's really been over the years important for me to feel that that uh, you know I'm not being able to uh, my work is uh, my expression life is is an offering. It's a it's also an act of devotion. It's also a dana or. A, you know, a way of just connecting and offering back into the whole so that life isn't just a sort of business transaction about, you know, what do we get and what are we owed and, who you know, but this sense of... And it's, this nourishes the heart, I feel. When the heart gets nourished, it helps to um, support inner well-being and, 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 and nourish the practice. So, so that's the only other piece to, to what you were saying about right view, so. The attitude. There's any other questions? Yeah. Um, today. something that happens in that contact where it, <clears throat> my experience of it is very beautiful but there's, a, there's some fear it's like there's somehow kind of inf- somehow a sense of sort of infinity you know in almost anything mm-hmm. and um, <clears throat> the sort of fear comes up and it feels like there's one is a sort of some kind of fear of like disappearing in some way, and linked to that, a sense of a fear of becoming non-functional, mm. like, because there is a, in a sense of a way in which I feel like I just be here. And, mm. uh, I mean, this could go on and on, and, on <laughs> and also a fear of being perceived to have lost the plot. Yeah, Ben had a hell of a retreat, yeah. He's been smiling for now about six months now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there he is. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess what I'm asking is 
That's a good question. I mean, you're at a threshold, a, a place of transition, as what they would call in Thai, blien sanya, your, your whole perceptual nature's shifting. Old ways of seeing which were very concretized. Everything's concrete. Formed this and that and me and you and here and there and and your Dhamma practice is now revealing that for not true and um, your Dhamma practice reveals emptiness reveals things that seem so real that pop are gone moods that are so seductive and warm they've shifted. And as one touches the contact, this all happens right at the point of contact. When one's in contact, that's why it's so special. When you're not so much in contact, you can still lapse back into seeing the world through concepts, which make things seem quite familiar again. When you're at the point of contact, which is alive, moment to moment, raw, then, then one tends to be in touch with the anicca, the changing nature. And, and when one does that, it, it, everything's flowing. And at the same time, the knowing, the heart, the awareness principle becomes stronger. And that reveals this infinity, this limitlessness. And uh, it's new what we used to take refuge in is starting to disappear, so it's, and yet you're still not quite sure where you're going. So that's, that's scary. It is scary. All the great saints and sages, you know, say, don't worry. Uh, you're, you're, uh, and, and, uh, but you know, be, be kind with that process. You don't have to rush that process. You can be interested in that process and keep, um, uh, steadying yourself, uh, like keep the body around, steady yourself, even though the body's vibrating, it still is steadying. You can still see change while one steadies oneself with the body. And then little by little one gets a feeling of resting in that measurelessness. You know, that it is actually a ground, that it is actually a, a, an, an effortless place. Because these are such... Um, um, you know, there's a certain amount of falling stuff falling apart and stuff like that. It's That's why it's so useful, and we haven't spoken about it on this retreat yet really much, but it's so useful to have that foundation of ethics. You know, really very important. So that is your safety net. That is your, your uh, link, meaning, you know, committing yourself consciously not to harm that means every level, when you commit yourself to try not to intentionally harm anything, then every living being can breathe a sigh of relief more around you. So, so you're creating this relationship to all form. When you commit yourself to the ethical principle of not taking what doesn't belong to you, again, you're offering every being freedom from fear. Because you're, you're, you're saying, look, you don't have to worry about me on some level. I'm not going to take anything from you. Same with, you know, one's sensuality, sexuality, you know, to, to try to refrain from exploitative, 
taking advantage, splitting up anyone else's relationship, then you're also making an offering of safety and trustworthiness to all that's around you. Same with speech, you know, trying to use the speech as best you can. And, and you seem very careful with your actions. Uh, but to, you know, to be true, to be unifying, to be clarifying, not just to be meaningless, not... And to treasure your consciousness. The, the fifth precept is about sometimes we seek nibbana when we're, we seek to get out of suffering just through intoxication or through getting high with some... Uh, substance or something. Uh, and, and in that precept, one is tr- honoring that the instrument of awakening that takes us safely home, that we want to protect that, that, that instrument that can see clearly, that foundation uh, makes it safe. And, and then that fear, uh, the, the fear of that vastness, won't I just be Uh, I mean, you know, some people have actually said, uh, you know, to me, gosh, I'm I'm afraid I'm just going to become a a doorknob or uh, a cucumber. Uh, And, uh, you know, just empty. And and I think it's important to to hear that fear, you know, hear that, let it arise and cease. But our... uh, Many of you have heard heard this image, but Ajahn Chah really encouraged us not to be afraid of emptiness. He said uh, that what we're becoming is uh, is a little bit like a gong, like a like a bell. He said it looks, you know, really uh, it's empty. It doesn't look like it's doing much. Uh, and if we think, oh, well, that's a bit of wasted space, you know, surely. Uh, we're that empty bell. We could, uh, you know, you never know when you're going to need uh, t- tissues. And, and uh, you know, uh, gosh, uh, devotional practice. You know, you you can off light the candles and, and the incense, but if you don't have your lighter, you got to make sure you have one. And uh, you, you you get the message. You know, you can. And I gotta really make sure that I don't space out, know exactly what time it is, and and you know, sometimes we can fill up the space, and and think, but then when something contacts the the bell, you know, it it it, it doesn't resonate, and and Ajahn you know Cha encourages, don't be afraid of the emptiness. That when nothing's happening, let nothing be happening, or just enjoy the vibratory emptiness. But he says, when you're when you're empty and awake, you know, when 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 something comes and touches you, you'll resonate with that. And when when suffering comes, you'll resonate with suffering. Something will respond to that suffering. When beauty touches you, you'll rejoice in the beauty. And the beauty of, of emptiness is that it's is is that it's equanimous because it will keep seeing things come and go. And uh, though you, though you're at a, a transition with that foundation in virtue, 
and more and more exploring and trusting that spaciousness to be empty enough to respond to life. Um, I, so that image for bothness for myself has really been helpful more and more over the years to to just keep trusting and melting into. Does that address the question? next year or the following year. My mother has Alzheimer's. She's 93. And um, her only pleasures, really, left are seeing me. She remembers me, generally. Um, and having a glass or two, or possibly three, because she forgets how many she's heard, of sherry. And not necessarily, pleasures don't necessarily come in that order. Um, how do you make sense of, of what's happening to her, of, which seems to be the antithesis of mindfulness? She you know, sometimes mm. forgets her, well, often forgets how old she is, mm. what she's done, who mm. she and, mm. and what there are a lot of us who are going to be you know, if we go on living this long in similar positions, what? Maybe there isn't an answer, but I'm really trying to grapple with it. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if you could shed any light on it. Yeah, I think... Um, <clears throat> I think when one's presented with someone so close, like a parent or... Um, and how we've known them changes dramatically. Um, And we would like, perhaps, for them to be how we've known them and the relationship to be what's familiar to us so we we can find a reference point in it, and that changes. Then, in a way, what we're challenged is to have to let go of our idea of how they should be, and perhaps then the connection is is different, you know, becomes different. It's not within the framework. So then, really, what's happening for the other is not so much. Um, I mean, it's our concern, but it's not under our control so much as to you know the place where we can really um, respond from is how are we in in the presence of a loved one or anyone that's going through um, an experience that doesn't fit our model of how it should be or how they should be. And, you know, to try not to fix them in the model, um, but to respond freshly in the moment. If you're in the moment with it, then you will connect in the best possible way for what's needed, however that that unfolds. Um, and who knows, it can be surprising when my grandmother had uh, dementia, Alzheimer's kind of syndrome. 
And she was in a home and she seemed to have a lot of problems recognizing people and we went to see her and she was been a, uh, she was such a sweet uh, she passed over um, a while ago but she was uh, one of the sweetest people she came from the east end of london was very very just no pretentious very straight um, simple straightforward and so it was very painful to lose all of the perception I had about you know how my grandmother should be she's very loving and um, Kilisara and I went to see her and uh, we sat down I said, oh, hello, Nan, how are you doing? And she turned and she said, well, she said, I haven't been here long enough to say it's good. But there again, I haven't been here long enough to really say it's bad. And then she said, how's that for someone in my condition? <laughs> And I felt like she was like the Zen master, you know, like, you know, all these ideas of someone in dementia and, you know, feeling sorry for them. And it was like, you know, who's speaking to who here, you know, who's really in touch, you know, so who knows. Oh, yeah, yeah, she had a moment of, yeah, yeah, so, so when you, you take it back to this heart, then it becomes workable. Um, I'm to just do one, one more. Maybe on that. Yeah. Um. Oh, uh, maybe we can leave it maybe then for tonight. And I think tomorrow there's a couple of areas that we might get to touch into before we, we finish the retreat. Is that right? Unless there's anything burning. Is anything burning? <laughs> Just sit for a few moments and we can share blessings. May the blessings 
of our practice be shared with each other. May we increase in well-being, be free from harm. Awaken to the underlying peaceful, immovable suchness of our being, true seat of confidence, of trust, of faith. And may we share the blessings of our practice for the welfare of the whole. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.